Hello, I'm Kevin Barrett, host of Truth Jihad Radio. Today, the true holy war is the war for truth. Please join the Truth Jihad. Go to truthjihad.com and become a subscriber today. I can't do it without you. Welcome back. This is the second hour of tonight's live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, doing the show every Friday evening here on Revolution.Radio. You can also check out my work at kevinbarrett.substack.com and get early access to these shows. Okay, let's get into the second hour. In the, the first hour, we talked about democracy, the ideal and the reality, the fraudulent ideology that masks the actual oligarchy that rules the United States. We've been out making the world safer democracy for, well, since World War II, for sure. I guess that phrase came from World War I. And the U.S. empire has been going all over the world pretending that what we're doing is idealistic and supporting democracy and human rights and all that sort of thing. But the reality is actually quite the opposite. We virtually always support the wrong side if there's a conflict and we do it in a way so as usually to cause more bloodshed and suffering rather than less. And unfortunately, what's going on currently in Armenia and Azerbaijan is no exception to that rule. There's a new film about this issue out called The Desire to Live by Mariam Avatissian. And we're going to talk about that tonight with Peter Bahlawanian. He's the producer of The Desire to Live. It's a beautiful film. And very, uh, rather than talking, head you to death and tell you the, uh, the, the history, uh, you get to see the actual people uh, of this region who are suffering so much now that it's been blockaded. So I understand we're having a hard time getting through to, to Peter. I don't know uh, if there's anything I can do to help that process along. Um, so let, let's see. Uh, um, maybe I can uh, figure out an alternative number. Uh, let's see here. It's uh, This is supposed to be a regular U.S. phone number that we should be able to reach him at. Uh, and, okay, the number is coming up unavailable. So in that case, I guess I will have to email Peter and uh, tell him that we need him. So here we go. I am now at my trusty keyboard emailing Peter. Uh, so treat Peter trying to reach you at, and then I'd better not tell everybody that same phone number. And then it says coming up unavailable. And, uh, Let's see if that helps. With any luck, we'll uh, we'll get uh, Peter on the show. So yeah, Peter recommended a background article about this. It's called "Genocide Is About to Unfold in Artsakh, and the West Has Secured a Front Row Seat." And that article, uh, which was published on Zartonk Media, uh, it's uh, oh okay, that's that's interesting. Um, so it's okay. The number is coming up, uh, invalid number. Um, so let's see what I, what can I, what can I do about that? Uh, 
uh, maybe I can try to get Eileen on the line too. The number is coming up invalid. Uh, I wonder if there's some problem with calling it by Skype. That's sometimes an issue. So I'll send this to Peter as well as to his PR outfit, and maybe they can come up with something. And if and, if and when they do, you will hear about it. So this, uh, this op-ed that Peter's recommending uh, is, of course, very strongly tilted towards the Armenian side in this conflict. On the other hand, with this, the, what's going on right at this moment, I can understand why people would, would tilt to the Armenian side, because the uh, as you know back in the the first war around what 1990 or so uh it was you know it was not at all obvious that the armenians were totally the good guys at that point i believe that uh the number of people ethnically cleansed was actually much greater among the azerbaijanis it was there like 800,000 of them uh were displaced uh, as opposed to about a quarter of a million Armenians. So this uh, ethnic cleansing has gone on on both sides. And it's right now, however, it does seem that this blockade uh, is really uh, causing an awful lot of suffering in Artsakh. And it's being done under completely false pretenses as the Azerbaijanis have sent in a bunch of military people disguised as environmental activists. And so they're blockading the only route into Artsakh and not allowing food and medicine and such to get through. And unfortunately, the Russian peacekeepers there are not interfering with this blockade. So the whole thing is, is it kind of stinks. And, you know, the Armenians, of course, tend to present this along the lines of uh, a you know, long-standing genocide of Armenians. Uh, okay, so here we're looking... Okay, Peter supposedly has a Skype, so I'm going to pull up his Skype here. Uh, and his, his Skype. Uh, oh boy. There we go. So I think we can pull up Peter, Peter's Skype by way of his email. Uh, there he is. Okay, so we're, we're going to try an alternative uh, method of reaching Peter by going through his uh, Skype rather than his phone number. That's kind of uh, unfortunate the phone didn't work, but we do have him by email now, and he should be popping on to the Skype here uh, pretty soon with any luck. Uh, so I'll tell him we're Skyping you, and hopefully that'll work. Okay, so, yeah, unfortunately this phone can only use either a phone number or a Skype account. We can't use all these other things like, you know, WhatsApp and uh, uh, Facebook Messenger and uh, what, what do people use these days? There are all of these different messaging appliances out there. Frankly, I almost liked the world better when it, things were so much more simple and it was just AT&T, Ma Bell, a, a fully regulated and, uh, and uh, a public uh, utility, basically. Uh, more than a private company, and just kind of one of them, keeping it simple, that actually worked pretty well. So call me a, a socialist or something, but honestly, I thought when they busted up Ma Bell and they uh, opened it up to all of these mini uh, capitalist companies, they, they actually made things a lot worse, certainly more complicated than it needed to be. And the same is true, a lot of, uh, true of a lot of other uh, things as well. 
I actually think anything where there's an economy of scale, it ought to be done as a regulated public utility with total transparency. And uh, anything where there are genuinely competitive small industries, that should be left to the private sector and they should be basically unregulated as much as possible. So anyway, that's that's my take on these things. Skype, unfortunately, got bought up by Bill Gates. He's trying to run it out of business because it, it's not good for spying on people. Uh, so we're protesting by continuing to do these shows on Skype. And, and hopefully we're going to get Peter Bahloanian uh, up here on the Skype real soon. Let's see. Um, I'm going to try. Did you try the Skype? Or maybe I maybe I can actually. I don't know. I, I have in the past uh, tried to get him here. Looks like... Uh, yeah, boy, I don't know. Uh, Peter Bahloanian, allow joining via link. Okay. So I guess I can send him a link to get him onto the Skype. Or uh, maybe I can even add him somehow. Yeah, and no, I, I don't think this is going to work. I can't really do this while I'm trying to talk on the show, so I really need help from my trusty assistant, Mr. Rowe, to take care of trying to bring Peter's uh, Skype up, if possible. And uh, we we should be able to get him. He's, uh, well, let me try maybe messaging him or whatever. Well, hopefully Revolution Radio can send him a Skype invitation. Uh, huh, there he is. Okay, I'm going to send him a link, and hopefully this will work. It'll pop up automatically. Oh, boy. I don't know about this whole uh, Skype business. Maybe we're going to have to talk to Revolution Radio and see if we can get the uh, get get alternate modalities for getting through to people because it's, it's more and more this live show is not working too well in terms of connecting. Last week, we had a hard time getting through to Peter Myers in Australia and I think that was because of a, a Skype issue. And uh, now we're having a similar issue with Peter. But, hey, I think we, we got him on. Um, at least it came up saying he's on. Hello, Peter. Are you there? Uh, well, he's uh, he's showing that he's there. Hello, Peter. Hey, Hi. there you are. Welcome, Peter. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, that's good to have you. Problems here. <laughs> All right, so you, yeah, you can turn off your camera because it's wasted on our radio show. Uh, although it's a good, a good view. <laughs> so, I think, do you still see my camera? I thought I thought turn it. There you go. You got the camera off now. Peter, are you still there? I think he hung up. <laughs> he didn't just turn off his camera. He turned off the whole thing. Oh boy. Well, let's let's try again. Hopefully, he'll pop back up real quick. Um, Hi. Can hey. you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I can see you too. It doesn't matter. Go ahead. It's uh, that's okay. <laughs> that's better. That's better, right? Okay, there we got it. Okay. okay, now we got the audio. Okay, we're good. So, so Peter, let's let's talk a little bit about the situation in uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan in general, and Artsakh in particular, where people have been blockaded by this blockade under false pretenses of apparently Azerbaijani military people who are posing as environmental activists and basically uh, starving the people out. This is just the latest episode and a lot of horrible stuff happening in that part of the world. So um, where should we, should we start with the film or start with the larger situation? 
Um, I mean, they're all connected. So basically, when we started the film, we started right after the war of 2020. And I knew even after the war had stopped, people were still getting uh, harassed and, and tortured and picked up from them and taken into becoming prisoners. So for two years, we continued documenting all the villages, the border towns, you know, trying to shed light to the story and to give the people a voice. And now the situation went from very bad to much, much worse with this, like you called it, you're right on. It's uh, basically military people dressed up in civilian clothing, acting like they're protesting some kind of uh, eco disaster, uh, saying that the Armenians are contaminating the lands there by uh, harvesting the, the mines. Uh, but meanwhile, the mines are all the central thing about this whole invasion or in trying to get all the Armenians out is because they they have their eyes on these mines, um, these rare earth mines. And they also exist in Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan wants them because they've already pre-sold the rights to to go in uh, and, and basically exploit all the minerals out of there. So they've already pre-sold it to other companies. It's a very bad situation. It's been 47 days now the blockade's on. So no food has gone in. Usually there's about, uh, I would probably uh, guess at about 100, maybe. Hello, Peter. I think we lost Peter there for a second. Uh, that's odd. We're certainly having connection issues with our live radio show lately. Um, he should pop back. He's theoretically there. Um, I have no idea why his phone number didn't work. That's totally bizarre. I can't believe that there are powerful forces that don't want us talking about this. I mean, if we talk about a lot of really sensitive stuff on the show. I wouldn't really think that this... Azerbaijan versus Armenia conflict in this Artsakh situation would be the most sensitive topic that I've approached on this show. So, hi, can you hear hey, me? Hey, hi, Peter. Do, do, okay. do you have a connection issue going on? No, I don't. I, I don't have a connection. You know, I, I, I do a lot of really sensitive topics on this show, and so whenever we have technical issues, you always kind of have to scratch your head and wonder if it's like the NSA or somebody. But frankly, uh, I, I doubt if the Azerbaijanis are, are trying to stop you from talking here <laughs> I, I i don't know i mean i've had a lot of issues with azerbaijanis online and on social media and i've gotten uh my personal businesses under attack they've been hacked they've they've tried to uh, i have an online business that tried to affect that i mean i'm always on guard in that sense since i started making the documentaries i have been a bit of a target uh for them but in general i doubt that they're they have the the energy or the the mindset to come after me directly. But I mean, I guess everything's possible. I don't know. I mean, the company that that that, they, that is mining or they made an agreement with have ties in the U U.S. as well. So I'm not surprised. This is this is bigger than anybody can even imagine. Well, rare earth uh, minerals are really important these days, aren't they? I mean, that's a, that's been a that was a factor actually, probably even in getting the U.S. into Afghanistan along with the opium and such. And uh, currently there's a scramble for Africa uh, and, and, you know, the, the Russians have a lot of them, which is one of the reasons that the neocons would like to bust up Russia and uh, and take it down and just grab all that stuff like they were doing in the 90s. So, yeah, there's a, a worldwide kind of scramble for these rare earth minerals. And I guess it's in a sense, uh, it's kind of a mixed blessing 
for the Armenians in Artsakh to have to be right in the middle of a very wealthy region. A wealthy region, but they're not profiting any of it from it at this point. I mean, there's probably a, a few handful of people that are probably making some serious money, which are Armenian and over the periods of 30 years have had to uh, take it from there. But they haven't been harvesting it to what its extent is. And the, the, the production that they want to go in is basically at a different level where it has been so far. I mean, my, my belief is if the people of Artsakh are sitting on mines and they're rich with, you know, very, very um, minerals that are very rare now and very in need, then they should profit from it and they should basically have a part of that wealth. I mean, that's how it should be, you know, but at this point, Azerbaijan's doing everything possible to starve these. Hmm. Well, there, there goes Peter again. This is a, uh, well, given what happened last week with another Peter. Hi, Ma- I'm back. Sorry, okay. Something's going on here. Yeah. That's weird. You know, I had, an, I had another guy named Peter on last week and, and had similar connection issues. So maybe I'm getting some- knocked out by, with, through my phone. Like uh, something's knocking me off and I'm coming. I have to come back to the, to huh. the, I, that's very strange that this is happening this way. Yeah, yeah. Two, two weeks in a row I've had this happening out of nowhere on Truth Jihad Radio. So for whatever that's worth. But yeah, so, so so you're saying that, yeah, there are these rare earth minerals there and the people there should get some of the benefit from them. But of they course, the, yeah, the, the issue, though, of, of sort of the it, I don't think if there's an exact parallel here, but in terms of this uh, Western Sahara versus Morocco issue, that's one where I ended up kind of leaning more towards the Moroccans. Right. Almost all of the. Uh, sort of left-leaning people globally sympathize with Western Sahara and its desire for independence backed by Algeria. However, when you get right down to it, the phosphates are probably the biggest single factor driving that conflict. And it's not really clear to me that it's better for a handful of people uh, who are claiming that they're the local indigenous people at, in this particular region, that they they then, with backing from another large country necessarily, should be inordinately profiting from it any more than, let's say, the people of a certain you know county in Texas should be profiting vastly more uh, for uh, on oil found in that area than the rest of the people of the United States and the world. So, in these kinds of resource disputes, it you know it seems to me that uh, finding a, a fair and just solution you know is usually not just like giving the smallest local group some kind of autonomy and total control over the resources. Uh, just like with Iraq, I mean, breaking off Kurdistan from Iraq, as the U.S., the Zionist-sponsored U.S. invasion did, was great for certain Kurds who were making a killing off it, but they busted up Iraq, and the Iraqi government is really should be partly run on the oil revenues from the Kurdish regions of Iraq, which have been artificially busted up by a foreign invasion by the world's most predatory imperial power. So Correct. long story short, it's, it's, you know, it's, to me, it's more complicated than just the local people should get their autonomy. And in this particular conflict, uh, I, I know, you know, you lean strongly towards the Armenian side. I'm actually pretty much neutral overall. I, uh, but I, I, I've seen, you know, there are incredible allegations of very bad things against both sides. Uh, but currently, I agree with you about this blockade of Artsakh under false pretenses, that that's obviously uh, just, you know, I mean, who could defend that? Uh, in, in terms of the, the larger historical situation, though, that led to these Armenians in Artsakh being sort of 
surrounded by Azerbaijan, which is, you know, and Azerbaijanis claim, yeah, this, this area is supposed to be Azerbaijan. It was when it was the Soviet Union. And, and then, you know, 800,000 Azerbaijanis were ethnically cleansed in the 1990 war, as opposed to about a quarter of a million Armenians. Um, isn't, isn't there some way that to solve this besides just endless squabbling along ethnic lines? Absolutely. There's always a way of solving it without going to war. But the problem is that there's so much greed involved in these people. And don't forget that these countries are being run by dictators and they're, they're oligarchs. You know, all the ex-Soviet states or republics that are now countries are basically run by these mafiosos. And they they look at their wealth and basically decide, make decisions accordingly. Uh, Aliyev is not thinking about his people. He's not trying to make his people richer. He's got a he's got oils and gas like crazy, but his people live in poverty. Uh, Armenians in Artsakh they weren't thinking about the mines. They just lived there. That's where they've been living for centuries. It's not like they went there because they're mining. No, they live in those lands because they they've been living in those uh, Caucasus, the high Caucasus, known as for them as their their only place to live. And some of them don't even want to move to Armenia. They, they don't even feel like Armenia is uh, their land, where their land and what they're known is that region. So what happens is when the Azeris come to me and they talk to me about, well, those are Azerbaijani lands. I'm like, why would they be Azerbaijani lands? Because Stalin gave it to you. Stalin gave it, gave Azerbaijan, that part to Azerbaijan to, to break down the people and create conflict between each other. It doesn't mean nothing to me. Stalin was a murderer. He's, he has no right to have given it to Azerbaijan. And, and even Nakhichevan was the same story. It was Armenians that would live there. And then he decided to separate them and basically create a situation for, for them to have each other as fighting with each other so that he, they can easily rule that area. And that's what's happened for a long time. Now, Putin plays a big part in everything that's been going on, obviously. Uh, for a long time, Armenia's big abusive brother was Russia. And for years, the oligarchs that actually became prime ministers of Armenia, they were kind of like people that went the Russian way. You know, they followed the Russian rule. And that's why Russia kind of always protected Armenia for all those years. But when that first war happened, you know, it was a pretty brutal war. We figured after that war is done, now we can start focusing on peace. But Ar Armenia went in one direction and Azerbaijan went in the other direction. You know, Armenia started f focusing on their infrastructure, building it to become a, a democratic country. It, I mean, it's not perfect. It's gone through a lot of troubles and issues and it still goes through it. But luckily, there's a diaspora of Armenians that are always fighting for democracy, you know, because we've, brought, we've been brought up in the West. Most of the Armenians in the diaspora have, have been brought up in civilized countries. But there's always still a struggle with Armenians in, in Armenia to understand this, but it's taken some time. But at least there's that there's always that opportunity for it being a better country. Azerbaijan didn't go in that direction. 40 years. It's one ruling family stealing from their people all their riches and keeping them uh, with hatred in their heart, thinking like Armenians are sub creatures, subhuman creatures. And this is how they've been brought up for three or four generations now since that war. So they've been planning this huge attack with their military might. Uh, population wise, they're completely outnumber Armenians anyways. And Armenians themselves, they're just geographically in a terrible location. When you look at it from above, you got Turkey on one side, which 
basically almost annihilated them once. Then you have Azerbaijan that wants to annihilate them. Then you have Iran on the south side, which probably and ironically has the only open border with them and with any other country. So it's it's a very strange situation for Armenia to be in. And on top, there's Georgia. And you think they have a good relationship, but they don't because he's another oligarch that's running that country. And everybody... Oh, looks like we have another uh, blip here. On our, I'm back. Okay, I'm back. that was quick. Okay. <laughs> so that so what I was trying to get to is basically yeah, they're in a very difficult situation, but they're trying to become a real democracy. And I know that because I've been actively seeing it change in front of my eyes, and I've been one of the big critics critics of Armenia and their politics in the past. But it doesn't happen overnight. But when you look at what's happening with people in, let's say, in Artsakh, where these people don't have much. They just live in, you know, rural neighborhoods. Uh, Stepanakert is the one major city there. Uh, they, after the war, they, t- they took over Sushi. Sushi was the big cultural area for Armenians, and they took that area off. But now the Lachin Corridor is literally the only road in and out. So if, if that is blocked, then there is no communication, there is no contact for people to go in or out with anything. So no food, no medication. The gas is controlled by by Azerbaijani side because they are able to cut off the gas and the electricity. So they did this last year in the middle of the winter. They basically want to freeze the people through the winter. They've taken over a lot of the forestry after the war before the people used to use that for wood to burn and stay warm in the winter. Now they can't even do that. Most of the wood is gone. So at this point, and he's come out and said it directly, I, I if you want to leave, you could leave. So basically, he's ethnic cleansing the whole area. He wants everybody out of there. And if you're going to stay there, you're basically going to be, you know, it's going to be our land. You're going to play by our rules. And that's not that's these people have lived there forever. And they actually voted even before the Soviet Union fall to separate and to get their own independence or at least tie it to the Armenian Republic instead of it being tied to. The, so they did this responsibly. And that's what triggered the pogroms back in the uh, late 80s, you know, the Baku pogroms and the Sumgai pogroms in Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan always talks about, oh, the Armenians took over our lands. No one took over anything. They they didn't even own those lands as as a country at that time. It was part of the Soviet Azerbaijan. So Azerbaijan has never actually claimed or owned those lands or even had people living on those lands when those lands were independent after the USSR's fall. I mean, there's these claims that are just ridiculous. And yeah, there's two sides. And I'm born in Canada. I'm trying to be neutral. Yeah, obviously, I'm Armenian and I see the pain on the Armenian side. And obviously, with link to the genocide from a century ago, our, our memories are very clear that this can happen again. And we're seeing it happen again. Unfortunately, this is what the aim is now for Azerbaijan. So either the people leave or they're going to die. I mean, this is your choices. And if when somebody comes to me and says, well, you know, they could always leave. Why would you leave? That's the, why, why would you, why should they leave? Is that is that way of treating human beings that they've lived there forever and they don't know anywhere else to go? I mean, this is this is the problem that we have. And something has to be def- definitely changed uh, moving forward. Azerbaijan has to be put in its place. He, they've, they've done too many bad things in this in this time span that uh, needs to be tended to because when you don't do that then you let other people continue doing it and then it just gives the power to people that have power to do whatever they want and that's unfortunately we see that happen quite often well the situation is reminiscent of course of what's been going on in palestine since 1948 and starting to ramp up again now with this new extremist israeli government where they're you know cutting off 
the possibility of life and just trying to kind of get rid of the indigenous population. Uh, and of course, we, we do hear about that in the media. And it seems that this situation uh, in, in the, well, this particular conflict uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan and then what's happening right now in Artsakh, it's not really getting very much publicity. I think if I went out to the coffee shop and talked with my neighbors or knocked on doors and asked them if they knew about it, I would say probably the vast majority would have not even heard of it, and virtually nobody would have any accurate information about it. So um, two, two years ago when the war was going on for 45 days, there was probably six articles written about it throughout that whole period of time. Nobody even knew it was going on. It was like COVID was happening, uh, all kinds of disasters or, you know, things were going on in every country and people didn't have the attention span to think about where even, uh, first of all, Artsakh, they don't even understand that word, how to say it properly. You say it very well. And uh, when you relate to Nagorno-Karabakh, the Russian name, they don't even understand where that is. Most people don't know where that is. Most people don't even know where Armenia is yet. So for for people that don't know geographically or even have ever been in that part of the world, why would they care, right? So that's that's the big question sometimes I ask because I'm Armenian, I care. But when you're not Armenian, why why should you care? There's things happening all over the world that shouldn't happen. But in this case, unfortunately, the media should play a part in telling the story and informing people of what's happening and let people decide whether. And in our case, none of it was happening. I mean, in L.A., California, people had to go on the streets and stop traffic so the CNN could take, could make a make a segment on the people stopping the traffic and then saying why. And then that was the way they got the message across that there was a war going on. Or other than that, they wouldn't be tell, talking about the war at all. So it's sad that that's what it leads to. But unfortunately, the media has been has been taken over as well. You know, there's people that are controlling the media for their own benefit and show and talking about certain things and then shutting up completely other things. I mean, my film is a way of the power is in my hand. I'm going to do my best to, to show it. And I took the festival circuit. I decided I'm going to use the festival circuit as spreading awareness. I, I submitted in over 350 festivals around the world. And luckily, uh, happily, people accepted it, you know, and, and we have 150 official selections because of it. And then because of that, people see it. And that's I think that's the th the thing is, it's like you do have always the road, but it takes a long time. And now we're here and there's, you know, 47 days now of, of this blockade and still very, very little coverage. Coverage started only last week. Until then, I hadn't seen one article literally talking about it. And now recently now they're talking about it because it's it's drastic when you don't have it in the middle of the winter and people are freezing and children uh, are hungry and people need medication. You know, my filmmakers, they're stuck. She's she's in Artsakh. She's my director. She's the person I've been working with for three years, two and a half years now. Uh, she can't do anything because everybody's a little bit in in a situation. I mean, it's not like they're not they, they don't know vulnerability because these people have been vulnerable for a while. but at least they know certain primitive things like staying warm in their houses, being eating, you know, and sheltering at least that much of it. If they could handle, they'll live. But that's taken away from them. Now, uh, Aliyev's plan is he's going to he's going to open the corridor. So he's going to ex expect people to leave a massive exodus and then he's going to close it again. So he's going to play this game with the people's mind so that, that he can wear them out and eventually have very little people left. 
so that after a while you'll be like, oh, well, this is almost deserted. So if you guys, you know, we're going to take it anyways. And then they're not going to stop there. They're going to go after Armenia because there's mines in Armenia as well. So all this is all about, again, greed, power, money, wealth. It's all connected to the, you know, everybody else. Because don't say America doesn't know anything that's going on. America knows everything that's going on. You know, they can do whatever they want. Luckily, Pelosi flew down the day before. I was in Armenia that, that week when they attacked Armenia. And, and they were going to attack them from both sides. Uh, and then Pelosi flew down unex- unexpected, unplanned. And she basically gave a speech saying America's with, you know, democracy of Armenia and and, and, and OK, kept them at bay. So then they didn't. So, so Pelosi actually did something useful for once. She did. She definitely did. And so it was surprising that she did show up. And, and you know what? I, I loved her for that on that day for it, for sure, because I knew for a fact that there would be more people dead if she didn't come and fly down. And, and she came down with a couple of senators, too. So uh, and Interesting. Then you know, that, I, I didn't I, I didn't get that at the time. At the time, I figured it, it was just more uh, American troublemaking. Mm. Absolutely not. You know, the day before I was at the American embassy because we were doing uh, our passports and stuff and we have to get them redone. And then the people at the embassy notified us, telling us to stay away from this region, stay away from this region. So basically, they already knew that there was imminent attack. So they, they didn't want us to go south of certain area of Armenia. And and I was like, oh, great, they're going to they're going to attack again because they had attacked the week before. And then, sure enough, that same night, she showed up, and then the next day was the Armenian Independence Day. So they were going to attack on Armenian Independence Day so that Armenians would take that day and remember it as the day that they you know, they lost their country or something. I don't know. I mean, this is the, the games that are being played right yeah, that, now. That doesn't sound very smart, though, from a sci- psychological warfare perspective. To attack a country on its Independence Day actually, sound, you know, I would think that would be counterproductive. Well, that's a lot of these things that are going on. There's none of them make sense. And they don't actually add up to anything in the real world. But in some absurd, tormented version of it that, uh, unfortunately, people in Azerbaijan live in, there's, they make sense out of it. You know, they they created a whole uh, a park with like helmets and like fake Armenians, you know, pictures and statues, like looking really ugly, obviously. And and. Uh, that was their victory park so the kids can come and look at this and they're all you know basically representing these armenian soldiers that had died in the war in this last war they basically think that's a good idea to have you know this is the way that country has been taught now for for decades you know implementing armenia phobia in there they're making them feel like armenians are subhuman and uh, you know they even have uh, stamps made where it's a it's a uh, exterminator with his machine uh, cleaning up that whole region. That's at their stamp of the year. I mean, this is the problem that I see as a Western Armenian that I'm like thinking like these are things I would never come across. But you know, living in in that kind of a world, uh, they don't know any better, unfortunately, and they don't have enough people rebelling against their government and seeing the truth and seeing why all of this is happening. Why are they being fed so much hate towards Armenians? You know, why is this? It can't be because there was a war 30 years ago and then, you know, they both sides lost that war. You know, Armenians maybe ended up with the lands around wherever they were fighting for, but they went in there protecting those people because they were going to get slaughtered if they didn't, the people in Artsakh. I mean, that that was the whole purpose of but, that but, war. But, According to the sources I've seen, 800,000 Azerbaijanis were ethnically cleansed during that war. 
Then, okay. 800,000 ethnically cleansed is a number that they've thrown out. I've heard a million, okay? I've heard half a million, and I've heard 200,000. And then on the Armenian side, I've heard 200,000, and I've heard 500, all the way up to 500,000. So in reality, people lived in both countries. Azerbaijanis lived in uh, the, the, border, the border states where the Armenians ended up taking over. And then obviously a lot of Armenians lived in Baku and Sumgait and all the major cities in Azerbaijan. These these pogroms started before the war started. So the, the uh, massive exodus of Armenians started way before the actual war. And then when the war. OK, it looks like a, a quick another quick blip on our radar screen, but we'll, we'll get Peter back. OK, I'm back. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, so basically, the, the war started because of the fact that the, all these these pogroms had happened in, in the late 80s. Uh, in in response to the fact that the Armenians wanted to separate, the Armenian portion of uh, Garapakh and Nagorno-Garapakh and Artsakh wanted to separate and attach themselves to Armenia. And because of that, they started killing and uh, harassing Armenians in the main cities of Azerbaijan. And those were the pogroms. They were known as the pogroms of those days where people would come literally with torches, uh, calling people out of their buildings, throwing them out of their balconies. I mean, like savages this was happening in just in the 80s it wasn't uh, 100 years ago so so what, what what is the reason for that i know i've there's an azerbaijani author i've had uh on the show once or twice and i think i remember discussing this with him a little bit and and from his book i understand that there's a kind of a, a feeling that the azerbaijani uh, diaspora, not so much the, the Western diaspora, but within the Soviet Union at that time and then uh, continuing on is uh, a bit of a sort of a, a market dominant minority in some places that uses ethnic nepotism, sort of like you know, the Chinese do in Malaysia and Indonesia and Jews do in a lot of places. Um, and so there's a prejudice against Armenians as that kind of sort of a nepotistic market dominant minority. Um, that is maybe less attached to some of the places where they live and it, taking inordinate numbers of the better positions in those places. I kind of got the sense that that was a kind of a prejudice that um, some people in Azerbaijan and elsewhere in the former Soviet Union had about Ar Armenians. It, that stemmed from there, uh, definitely. And that grew into becoming full bloom hatred and racism. I mean, it, it just took over that afterwards when the after the pogroms and after the war, Basically, and of course, when they did so-called lose the war, because both both sides lost hundreds of thousands of people in one way or another, meaning psychologically or physically, because they were victims of the war. And then afterwards, yeah, there was there was the people that ended up staying there. But at what price? Most of them had either lost their parents or they didn't have fathers because they were they had gone to war and died. So they were you know, starting families with, you know, no fathers or uh, the kids had died. So. All of these things play factor, but then, you know, eventually they tried to just put their stuff together, their lives together and create a new future for themselves. And that's what the, the thing we have to focus on is in the 30 years, that region started blossoming, you know, schools, educational centers, museums. Uh, I mean, beautiful buildings that uh, show the art and the culture, you know, all they wanted to focus was and, and celebrate was who they are. Now, on the other end, though, 
the problem started where they lost the war and the family obviously they're stealing from their people so they keep they start now creating this whole propaganda system where armenians are they're the worst they're they're demons you know they've done this to us they've taken our national pride and that's it decades and decades of growing and kids are being taught this and fed this now me growing up in canada we had a history with the turks and the genocide at one point you know my father and my mother talked to me about that and they told they told me about what happened and all of that stuff and at one point in my my blood i was angry and i and i felt like you know those damn turks you know they took they took that my grandfather was an orphan my grandmother was an orphan i start thinking about their lives and what they went through but then eventually you start wondering like okay that was a situation and then you don't i don't hate the turk turkish people i have turkish friends or people that i work with i i you you start realizing like this these are just a regime or uh, a leadership or administration or or you know military group that are doing this and at the end people all people suffer from it so we got over it so when i look at it why is it possible that somebody like me as an armenian growing up in in canada Uh, my parents were born in Beirut my grandparents were born in eastern turkey all scattered all over because of the genocide we were able to move on it, our our whole main concern was the recognition of it other than that it wasn't violent we weren't i'm not violent with any turk that i mean i actually work with a whole bunch of them i'm in the spice business in the, interestingly But, the, the armenian diaspora as i understand it has not demanded uh reparations from turkey you know the, the uh, of course jews have Reparations, reparations has never been yeah, yeah never yeah, been a Israel. topic yeah it's never been a topic for armenians it's always been recognition never right. been reparation which which that, and that's to the credit of armenians i think yeah well that's it that's and but, but that is the reality people just wanted to be saying that this happened except the fact that the, and it's there's armenian population living in turkey today they they stayed behind and they they were able to survive through and they have their churches in turkey they can live there there's a politician that's armenian in the turkish uh thing government i mean he gets into a lot of fist fights there but at the same time he's still talking and they're letting him talk which is which is still respectable when you think about it that's turkey the turkeys come a certain way too but now turkey's using azerbaijan back in the 1915 genocide turkey was using the kurds and the kurds came out uh, 50 years after and said we're sorry armenians we 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 really are we were part of that but we we know that that was wrong and now the armenians and kurds have you know become closer to each other uh, they actually share a lot of things with each other but the turks never came out in the open and accepted it and taken that genocide and put it behind them instead what they did is they fueled their azeri neighbors so that the azeri neighbors do their dirty work and now the azeris are doing that they they hate armenians i mean i'm i'm asking today somebody online why do you hate armenians i don't understand what is this hate coming from and he starts naming the the kojali massacre he starts naming about the occupants that are you know occupying his lands for 30 years and this i'm like okay but how is it there how is it occupying their lands when they've been living there before for hundreds and hundreds of years so who's occupying what just because you you were told this why do you hate them after all you know don't you have a normal life don't you go on with your normal life and try to make the best of it and then you know try to figure out how you can work with your neighbor this is things that i think that are troublesome to me because it seems like you know uh the way that 
people are brought up and what is acceptable and and what what should be taken you know and put put the trial and go to jail and other people are easily left off the hook because uh, because of their customs you know and and i think there has to be a line and the line is human life should matter more than uh, i don't know the property that you think I, you took from me or you think that he's an occupier and he doesn't deserve that land palestinians and jews perfect example like you said we palestinians don't have the right to live are they are they supposed to be like uh, told okay now you have to leave that land because we're going to build sky, uh, skyscrapers here or you know other settlements here they're, they've been living there that's all they know where to live and and it's not like it's huge either it's not like it's the land that they used to live on the you know armenians can say well our lands used to be from one coast to the other we lost it all we have the armenia has a small little plot right in the middle of a lot of muslim countries but they're still managing to you know survive or blossom from there just leave them alone let them be peaceful with each other that's so, so what, what what role has uh russia played and also iran i know that the russian peacekeepers supposedly could have tried to do something about this blockade but apparently didn't and typically we hear that russia has leaned towards being slightly more sympathetic to the armenian side although playing real politics and uh, Iran, likewise, is said to be sympathetic with the Armenian side. A friend of mine, by the way, is uh, uh, an Iranian whose parent he's, a, he's an Iranian Shia Muslim who converted. His parents are Christian Armenian. And it seems that the relationship with Iran has been pretty good. But in this case, it looks like nobody's really doing anything effective to stop this blockade. Why? Uh, what about the Russians? What about the Iranians? And then, of course, what about the Americans? Yeah, the Russians are the key players here because of the fact that of the the Minsk group, which was the the group that was part of that initial ceasefire and peace treaty from the 90s, uh, consisted of the U.S., France and Russia. Those three countries were part of the Minsk group and they were kind of like on and off negotiating back and forth to, to, you know, the Armenians after the war, they had seven settlements that they held on to and they kept them as buffer zones, meaning they they basically never re- those were not uh, lands that they proclaimed that there was theirs. Those were the lands where those Azeris were told to leave. That's where they left from all the migration. But they held on to those lands because of the fact that they kept them as buffer zones and they didn't people didn't live on those lands. They just kept it between Azerbaijan and, and that region for security purposes. Now, at one point or another, those lands were supposed to be returned. And there was conversation about those lands being returned. And that went on for decades. And for some reason or another, it was never returned. So what happened is that as as time went on, the the those lands themselves became not only the issue, but the lands that they they lived on as well became an issue. And when the new prime minister of Armenia came in, he started going towards the West a lot more. And I think that's what's triggered the Russians and Putin, because the war itself wouldn't have probably happened if there was another pro-Russian person in, in, the, in power in Armenia. And if that was the case, then Russia would have probably stopped it before it started. But because uh, Pashinyan is definitely aiming to more of the EU and the West, and he wants to get the Russian grip off of them, which they should, obviously, I'm for that. Russia turned their back. And then eventually, when after 45 days of war going on, came in as like, we're the savior. And at that time, Trump was in the office. So America wasn't even involved. They didn't even they didn't even move anything, do anything. They just kind of 
Trump said a couple of words here and there to his Armenians when uh, people he was you know they were voting or they were going to do the next election. Other than that, nothing. And the only European country that was screaming loud was France, but France on its own can't do anything without the union behind them. And the union was already European Union was already making deals with Azerbaijan for the oil uh, that they have you know set up for everything that they use. Russia now has become an ally of Azerbaijan. So, and that's what I've been uh, researching and documenting more and more. They've turned the corner and Armenia has, has gone past them now and try, is trying to connect themselves to the West. And just recently, the Armenian prime minister was asked by Putin uh, to meet at, uh, in Russia for a, a meeting with Azerbaijan and he ref- and to talk over the uh, Artsakh issue. And the prime minister said, uh, I'm not going to be involved anymore because you asked us to leave that area. And all the Armenian military left that area. The Russian military runs that space now, that whole area, the corridor and everything. And that's the only military that exists on those lands. The Azeri military is not supposed to be on those lands, but they are. Now, the Azeri militaries and the Russian military are somehow working together to keep those people in. It doesn't make sense. So, in well, the- it, it, it sounds like Armenia made a mistake, actually, in shifting to the West uh, at a time when you know, the, I'd, I wouldn't trust the West an inch. Well, I I don't know what's right or wrong, but unfortunately, Russia has always been there for them in the past because of the geographic situation and the ties with Armenians and Russia even before the USSR breakdown. But there there is a point where Armenia has to be able to be its own democracy, a real democracy, and that would never exist completely if it's being manhandled by Russia all the time. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that's the key here. It's not necessarily like they want to be a, an, an American associate or uh, affiliate, but they just need to be a little bit more independent. And for and that and they maybe the timing was bad. Maybe the decision of him pulling away, obviously right now, has backfired. Well, you know, John, John Mearsheimer's analysis about Ukraine uh, and in general the situation of smaller countries with large, great power neighbors suggests that it's much smarter for the small country with the great power neighbor to be pretty accommodating with the great power neighbor. And that's just a rule of geopolitics. And when you have a bunch of neoconservatives and neoliberals uh, who are planning to you know, conquer the world for neoliberalism, egging on uh, people in Ukraine or uh, maybe in Armenia uh, to you know, stand up against the Russian bear and so on, that's Probably, you know, Mearsheimer's analysis is that's just not smart. They shouldn't listen. That actually the the neoliberal Western Empire is pursuing its grand dream of world conquest. You know, ultimately they're tra- they're planning to go in and break up Russia, destroy Russia like they did in the '90s, and loot all its resources. And then they'll have China completely surrounded. Uh, and and that plan partly depends on getting uh, countries on the border of Russia, like Ukraine, of course, uh, turning them into rapidly anti-Russian, you know, neo-Nazi uh, countries, which they did with their with their 2014 coup. So I, I kind of yeah. subscribe to Mearsheimer's analysis, and that's why I would have uh, advised Armenians to maintain good re- relations with Russia, which is the, you know, the big guy on the block there that you really need to have good relations with them by you know, the, the people, the people themselves, uh, Armenians and Russians are very close still because um, uh, when the war actually started with Ukraine, 
I think when I was in Yerevan, there was about 120,000 uh, Russians that had just migrated there and relocated there because they wanted to leave uh, Russia and obviously business reasons, probably sanctions and things like that. People that work online and companies that work with American companies, they couldn't work anymore in Russia. So uh, a lot of people and, you know, in Yerevan, they're respected. I mean, they, they obviously speak the language with each other. So it's it's um, the people themselves have no issues at all with each other. But I think the issue right now is all the leaders and, and in this case, Putin. And I think Putin in, in his situation, he's just somebody that is going to make a deal with whoever he's going to see better fitted. And he might have been, too, because Armenia... You know, when I look back and I do my research, yeah, they were protected to a certain extent. But at the same time, when the war broke out, the only sole provider of military to Armenia was Russia. And they weren't even providing them the stuff that they needed and stuff that they had already ordered or paid for. Uh, the, pro the products that they had were old and uh, malfunctioning. Uh, a lot of it was extremely dated, so they, they were prone for attacks. All of this to say that uh, if you have a partner like that and he can't really protect you, and you know they also have uh, a, the CSTO, CSTI, I think it's called, which is the pact that they have with the, all these ex ex um, uh, Russian states that become countries that if one of them is attacked, they all they all come to the rescue. Well, when that happened, none of them came to the rescue for Armenia. Uh, so at, I don't know really why and what triggered it at first. All I know is that there's definitely these mines are at stake now because, you know, I would have thought it was oil first, but it's not. I thought it was the pipeline first and it wasn't. So at this point, it's it's really the mines that everybody's after. And now who's going to get those mines? Because they got a pl they got plenty in Armenia as well. They got plenty of ores that they can minerals that they need for all these microchips and satellites and the drones and everything else that's that's in the, this, you know, demand. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, the, my thing right now is my film is just spreading awareness of the situation and getting people a little bit uh, their attention so that they can talk about it a little bit more and maybe ask the question and then at least at least not cause the humanitarian crisis in front of our eyes or even the genocide happen behind our behind our backs, you know, because that's that can happen. Well, it's a very it's a beautiful film and the uh, yeah it's a beautiful part of the world. Uh, the, the backdrop is beautiful and the, the people there. Uh, too. It's, it's so I, I do recommend that people see it. And uh, is there something that people can do? Uh, they can see your film, The Desire to Live, which is linked at the entry for today's radio show, which you can find by going to truthjihad.com and click on the radio link. And uh, there is a link to that film. Is is there uh, anything else? Is there an activist uh, website or anything that people could connect with? Well, there's there's plenty of plenty of sites that are trying to do their best, but at this point with the blockade, a lot of everything is at a standstill. There's wow. nothing going into the region at all. There's trucks with humanitarian aid at in Armenia at the border waiting for that border for that uh, latch and quarter to open, so okay. they can bring over food and medication. Um, so it's, it's, a, so, it's a terrible situation, and we're going yeah, no, to have to leave it there. It's extremely bad, extremely bad, and it's in the middle of the winter on top of that, so the, the fact that okay. people are coming right, breathing. Well, well thank, you know. thank, thank you so much, uh, Peter Batalinian. It's great talking with you, and I hope that something can be done about this horrific situation. 
So take care. God bless. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for your time. Thank you for Thanks. listening to Bye-bye. Revolution.